We're going to be looking this morning at Psalm 51, but before, before we get there, I wanted to um, remind you of 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. For those of you who are visitors this morning, I've been preaching a series through 1 Samuel, then 2 Samuel, and the last few chapters in 2 Samuel have dealt with some very serious and important issues that we need to deal with, um, and a lot of it's, it has to do with sexual abuse, sexual sins. And in the midst of all of that, David gets a promise from God that he's forgiven. And I didn't want us to forget that before we jump to Psalm 51. And what I want to do is starting next week, begin a new series on knowing attributes. And so uh, before I jumped into that, I thought, well, we got a little unfinished business that I want to deal with, with this whole sexual abuse kind of a, arena, and that is, how do we get beyond it? 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, And then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has taken away your sin, you shall not die. Forgiveness. David is, has thoroughly messed up. He is thoroughly sinned. He has committed sexual abuse. He's been lazy. He's been a lustful pursuer of women. He's committed adultery. He's committed murder. He's committed rape. How do you get beyond that even after God comes to you and says, You're forgiven? That's what I want us to think about this morning. And I think Psalm 51 has the, the answer to that question. And the answer to that question is a question we all want because, as I, I shared with you as we were going through 2 Samuel 11, 12, and 13 and dealing with these issues, these are not just somebody else's sins. They're our sins. We all have committed these sins in our hearts Many people commit these sins every day through their smart devices, engaged in lustful activities. And we need to see ourselves as those sinners, and we need to, 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 to understand the need to repent, yes, and the need to get forgiven. But then how do we get beyond that? Because I've seen so many people, myself included, scream this message, please don't define me by my sin. I want to get beyond that. I don't want to be known always as the adulterer, the fornicator, the porn addict, the one who's inappropriately doing things on his smart device. I don't want to always be known as the sexual abuser. Yes, I messed up, and I was there, but I'm not there anymore. I want to be known for where I'm going. I am growing in Christ. I am becoming a new creature. How do I get there? See, that's what we want. And sometimes just saying, well, you're forgiven, that's not enough. I want to go beyond that. And I think that's exactly where King David gets to. You know, when you think about King David, what do you think about? The first thought that comes to my mind is, if you say, tell me about King David. I don't think about sexual abuse, rape, adultery, murder. And he was all of those things. I think about a man after God's own heart, upon whose throne Christ Jesus sits. How did he get there? How did he become a man after God's own heart when his sin was so terrible? I want to be there. I want you to be there. So I don't want to just leave you with forgiveness. I want us to get beyond forgiveness to this place where we become men and women after the heart of God. I think Psalm 51 has the solution. Um, many commentators look at Psalm 51 and they say it's about David praying for forgiveness. 
for all those sins in 2 Samuel 11, 12, and 13. And I think the prayer for forgiveness is, is, is implied here, but I think much more in Psalm 51 is David says, no, I want to get beyond that. He was already told directly by God through Nathan he was forgiven. So when you read Psalm 51, read it with David's shoes on. Read it from his perspective that he's already been told he is forgiven. Because the day he was confronted, he was also told he was forgiven. So we didn't have to go a few days down the road and him write this psalm. He was already forgiven. And then he writes this psalm. And notice this, this asking for more. I, let's start with where he's at. Verse 14. Verse 14 of Psalm 51 says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness. Now, you, you can't help but to say, I mean, that's a very specific request. I'm guilty of blood. There's blood on my hands. I'm guilty of murder. I'm guilty of adultery. I, I should have died. I committed capital offenses. So David gets that. And he wants to be delivered from that. But I think the deliverance is from far more than just forgiveness for sin. It's deliverance from all the consequences that come with those sins that he had to endure. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. So he's, he's praying for that. But let's notice how the psalm begins, verse 1 and 2. The psalm begins, just start seeing the, the language. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Let's get them behind me. Let's blot them out. Let's get them off the books. Take them away completely. It's not asking for just sin to be forgiven. I, I, want, I want to take that off the record. I don't want to be known as that anymore. Verse 2, watch me thoroughly. See, I don't, I don't, I'm not just asking for forgiveness for what I did. I, I, want, I want a thorough washing, cleansing from my sin. That's what David's praying for. And I think it's, I think it's so much more than um, just forgiveness. It's, it's, it's a prayer for 100% complete cleansing until I am holy as God is holy I think that's what David is asking for here um, and he knows that's what God wants look at verse 6 it says behold you desire truth in the innermost being and in the inner in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom think about that for a minute I know what God wants God wants me in my inner being, in the innermost recesses of who I am, he wants me to be aligned with his truth. He wants what comes from me from this point on to always be wise. That's what God wants. God doesn't just want me to be forgiven. He wants me to be thoroughly washed, thoroughly cleaned. He wants me to be thoroughly in line with his truth. That's, that's what I want. God, I want what you want. You want me to be holy. I want to be holy. That's what he's asking for. Uh, stop and just stop and think about that a minute. Do you pray that way? Do you ask God for truth in the inner being? Do you ask him to, to bring you to the place where all your thoughts and emotions and deeds are wise? That you're thoroughly on the same page with God. David's praying there. He's not just praying. I don't just want forgiveness. I, I want my sins completely blotted out, and I want to be this, this new creature that's all in, 100% holy. That's, that's more than forgiveness. Are we asking for more? I think we need to begin there. Verse 10, he says, Create for me a clean heart. If you've got a marginal note, if you've got one of those Bibles that gives you the marginal notes, it will say in the margin, literally, for. Meaning, create, doesn't mean, the, the Hebrew is not create in me a clean heart, but it's literally create for me a clean heart. And what's the difference? 
The difference is, I don't want you just to fix what's in me. I don't want you just, you know, take my broken heart and fix it. No, what I'm praying for here is take that one out and put a, a new one in. Create for me, out here somewhere, create a new heart and put it in me. And he uses the word creates, the same word that you find in Genesis 1.1. God created the heavens and the earth. You look in Hebrews 11, Romans 4, it talks about when God created, he created what he created out of nothing. He created from what did not exist. I think David is bringing all of that up. He says, that's what I need. I need you to create for me something that has up to this point previously not existed. I need a completely new something. I need a new heart. I need that to be inserted in me. I need to be a new being. And that means not fixing the old, but completely renovating, completely demolishing, whatever you want to, analogy you want to use. Let's start over. Create for me a new heart. That's what he's praying for. Uh, verse 13, not only a new heart, a new ministry. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. I want to spend my time. See, up in, you know, you look at uh, 2 Samuel 11, 12, and 13, you see everybody spending their time on themselves. What pleases them? David said, I want a ministry where I'm spending my time on other sinners. I want to give myself to sinners, helping them, teaching them, directing them, using all that you've given me to minister to them. So he's not just praying for a new heart, he's praying for a completely new ministry that he's let go. Uh, verse 15, he's praying for new praise. Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. It's interesting when you're caught up in sin, how you're not caught up in praise. And he says, I know I need this. I need to be living for the glory of God, declaring the praise of God. And that's what he's asking for. Verse 18, also, by your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Analogy for us, build a church. See, David, as the head of the church, as king of the national church at this point, he's been letting this go. And so he's praying, I need to be, again, building the kingdom of God. And you remember Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and what? Righteousness. A lot of times we forget that part. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I want, and that's what David is praying for. I'm not just praying for forgiveness. I'm praying for this righteous endeavor of building the people of God up again. Building the walls of our city again. Building something for God. Seeking first his kingdom. I need a new heart for that. I need a new ministry for that. I need new praise for that. I need new everything for that. See, so much more, Psalm 51, than just forgiveness. He's asking for God to make him new, righteous. And interesting contrast, verse 16 and 19. I save them to put together for this purpose. Verse 16, for you don't delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. Now skip to verse 19. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering, in a whole burnt offering. Then, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. It's like, whoa, you said you don't delight in it. And then you said, verse 16, then verse 19, you say you will delight in it. What is it? Which one is it? What gives? See, when you put them together, you say, something's happening between verse 16 and verse 19, obviously. And what's happening in verse 17, God's given him a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you won't despise. Something's changing in David. Something's changing in the kingdom. This, this new holy heart. If you, if you just want to come give me stuff, 
God says, not interested. But if out of a new heart, you praise me, you come and you're focused on biblical worship, giving to God, letting God be the audience, not me. You're not here now to fix you. You're here to praise God. God says, I like that. I like that. And David gets it. Complete change in the way he had been living to a new, beyond forgiveness kind of life. And I hope we learn to get there. Think about the church in America with me for a minute. You know, America is behind, it's third. It's behind China and India, then us, as the most, the country with the most non-Christians per capita. So if you want to be strategic in missionary sending, cross-cultural or whatever, you would send people to China first because they got more than anybody, non-Christians. You would send people to India second, and you'd send people to America third. Because we have more non-Christians per capita than any other nations except for China and India. Now, of course, it depends on how you define Christians. But I take this statistic from a very conservative group. Statistic comes from the Francis Schaeffer Institute of Church Leadership Development. Very conservative group. They don't look for, you know, sensationalism. Statistic is that we have fewer churches in America today per capita than we had in 1900. So the nation's been growing, but the number of churches has not. It's been decreasing. We have, more, we have fewer churches now than we had in 1900. What's the difference? We think about the message and how the message has so changed to be a man-centered message in most churches today. The message started around 1900 in America that what we want in church is we want to celebrate and we want to gain people's decision for Christ. And the revivalistic movements that went across America in the 1900s were to get people to fill a pew and walk an aisle and make, raise a hand and set, make a decision for Christ. And that same message is the message that's being preached predominantly today. And we get sucked into it because we like to celebrate decisions for Christ. So if somebody puts in post somewhere that 50 people received Christ today, or 10 people raised their hand and prayed today, or this many people walked on, we go, oh, yes, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And what we're saying is, the message is, all we need you to do is get forgiven. Just pray to receive forgiveness of your sins, and hallelujah, you're going to heaven. And that's not the biblical message. But that's the message that we've been given. Whereas Jesus comes and says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And that means a lot more than just get forgiven. I'm convinced that America doesn't need a lot of pastors cultivating decisions for Christ. I'm not sure we need one pastor cultivating decisions for Christ. But what we greatly need now is pastors who are much in prayer, who are always on their knees saying, God, make me holy. I need to be like you. And your people need to be like you. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit. Give me a brokenness and a contriteness that builds the walls of Jerusalem, that brings you praise. 
out of a sincere heart for your praise. You know that's true. Doesn't it break your heart when we don't crave it? Why did God save us? Ephesians 1.4 says, I chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world that you should be holy, blameless before him in love. Why are we saved? We are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, not just forgiven. And Paul says in Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has granted us every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, and in Christ chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, blameless, before him in love. He says, if we get this, we would be more and more praising God that what we have been granted, we have been granted because God wants us to be holy and blameless and before Him in love. And when we're sinning, we're none of those things. I think that's what David's asking for in Psalm 51. You see it. He's not just asking, let me walk the aisle, let me get forgiven. That's not what he's praying for. That's not the message God delights in. God's looking for so much more than that. Well, if you understand that and you get that, how do we get it? How do we aim at what David was aiming at? David's asking for us, asking for it. How do we get it? Well, let's look at the target again. The target, beginning at verse 1 uh, of Psalm 51, it begins with understanding God's willingness to grant us what he's asking for. God is very gracious. He says, be gracious to me. We have a gracious, willing God. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. You are loving. You are kind. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. So we begin by realizing we have a God who is willing to forgive and to cleanse. Then we pray, verse 2, wash me thoroughly. I want the thorough job. I want the thorough cleansing. I want to be holy. Our target needs to be more than forgiveness. I want to be thoroughly cleansed from all unrighteousness. Not just forgiven for some specific sins. Then notice where David goes. Uh, verse 3 and 4. He's, he says, I'm, I'm very aware of my personal sins. He says, I know my transgressions. I know my sins ever before me. I mean, if you murder somebody, you rape somebody, you commit adultery, you deceive you lazy as the king. You know those things. You don't have to have somebody come tell you you did that. It's like, I can't ever forget. I can't stop thinking about it. David says, my sins are always before me. And then verse 4, he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. He says, I know my sins. And notice he's talking about actual sins here. I have actually committed these sins. They're actual sins, personal sins. He says, I know them. And I know that if you came out of heaven and set up shop as judge, that I deserve hell. You would be righteous to condemn me, to damn me for my sins. I very well know that. I have nothing to stand on. I am a sinner. No doubt about it. He knows it. Second, not only does he know that he is actually a sinner, verse 5 begins with the word behold. It's like, stop and don't miss this. We saw that in verse 6. Behold, don't miss. God desires an inward purity way beyond what we think about. Verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now what did he just do? He just moved from actual sin to original, to original sin. He says, not only have I actually, am I actually guilty of stuff that should send me to hell like that. I'm actually guilty, but I, I have a nature that should put me in hell. I was born in sin. 
And what he's trying to show you and me is that he and, and God, as he's praying, I want you to understand that I understand I am in a condition beyond which there is no human escape. I can't get out. I can't be made right. I can't go to heaven in this condition. I've committed actual sin. I should die and be damned. I am a, by nature a sinner. Concede at conception. I was a sinner. My parents are sinners. If I have their molecules, I have sinful molecules. I was born this way. And the wages of sin is death, and I should go to hell for it. Because that's who I am. David says, I get that. A lot of times we don't get that. Let, let me remind you of the, the story of the rich young ruler. If you got that right, if you need to look it up, it's Matthew 19, beginning at verse 16. This rich man comes to Jesus. The rich man says, what do I need to do to go to heaven, enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, just keep the law. The rich man says, got that, check. So I've been doing that since I was a baby. Jesus says, okay, got a wise guy here, you know. What you need to do is go sell everything you got, give it to the poor, come follow me. And what, is it, what does Jesus say happens to the rich man? Goes away grieved. And why is he grieved? Because he didn't want to do that. And Jesus responds and says, you see the grief, it's obvious, he's grieving, he wants to go to heaven, but he's grieving because he doesn't have what it takes to get to heaven. And then Jesus makes this statement because everybody in his audience is astonished. When the man said, I've kept the commandment since I was a baby, you probably got people in the audience saying, he has. He's good. And then when you have him going away, he can't go to heaven? Whoa. And Jesus makes the statement, it's hard for rich people to go to heaven. And the crowd's so astonished, the disciples say, and Jesus even adds to it, I, right, it's hard for rich people to go to heaven. He says, as a matter of fact, it's so hard. It would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to go to heaven. To which the disciples say, whoa, then it's impossible. How's it? How is it possible to be saved? And Jesus says, it's not. I'm glad you finally got it. It is impossible for man to be saved. And then he adds, but with God, all things are possible. But do you get the first part of that? We are in a condition from which it is impossible to be saved. David got it. I have committed sin. God is holy. Sinners don't dwell in holiness. I should not be there. I was born in sin. I should not be there. I'm in a condition from which it is humanly possible, impossible to be saved. And because of that, what you notice right after he says all of that is his request in Psalm 51 are entirely for things he can't do himself. It's holiness by grace. We've got a class that deals with that upstairs. You need that first, and you can go on and live a life of significance. But holiness by grace. Notice verse 7, Psalm 51, purify me with hyssop. You can't do that. God has to do that. Purify you. Make me to hear joy and gladness, verse 8. Hide your face from me, verse 9. Verse 10, create for me, clean heart. Verse, nine, verse 11, don't cast me away. Verse 12, restore me. Um, verse 14, deliver me. Verse 15, open my lips. None of those things we can do. David's not asking, God help me do it right next time. God is, he, he's, he's asking 
that God would not just enable him to do anything, God would do something for him. That God would make him holy. And he says, he, he gets it, verse 16, he says, For you don't delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. In other words, he said, if there were anything I possibly could do, if you delighted in me doing stuff to fix this, then I would do it. Bam, I'm there. But God, you don't even want me to do anything. If you did, I'd do it. But what I need, I can't do. It's entirely impossible. Go back to the rich ruler. Why is it hard, hard, harder for rich people to get to heaven than poor people? We all need to focus on this because we're all rich in so many ways. Why is it harder for rich people to get to heaven than poor people? Because rich people have power. Rich people have influence. Rich people have resources. Rich people are the best at getting things done. You can afford it. You can make it happen with your power, your influence, your resources. And we already have this internal sinful nature that starts when we were a baby. I can still hear myself saying to my mom and dad, let me do it myself. I want to do it. And you grow up and you get rich and you say, I can do it myself. I have the power. I have the influence. I have the resources. I can do what I need to do. And then Jesus comes along and says, no, you can't. You were born into a condition and you've actually cultivated a condition from which it is entirely impossible for you to escape. If you could, you would do it, just like David said. If I could do this, I would do it. But I can't do this. I can't do it at all. I'm helpless, and I'm hopeless. I need God to come down and change me. You see that? Is that what you pray for? Is that what you're asking God for? God, make me holy. How can I, as an unclean man, dwell in your presence unless you make me holy? You must hide your face from my sin. You must blot out these transgressions. You must purify me. You must cleanse me. You must change me. I can't do anything to fix it. I've already messed up. And I was born messed up. And there's no hope unless somehow God loves us enough to send his only son to come and redeem us out of this condition. That's why we worship. Because we have a Redeemer who wants to come get us who can't get ourselves straight and bring us to himself. Um, we would do it if we could, but we can't. So, David's asking for it. Showed you you need to aim at it just like he did. Now, how do we get what we're asking and aiming for? Verse 17 is key. The sacrifices of a broken, of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. What God gives out, God's sacrifices are a broken spirit. The key is through brokenness. So I want you to begin to think and meditate on what does it mean to be broken before God, have this broken and contrite heart before God. First of all, realize brokenness is not treating sin as trivial. Brokenness is not treating sin as trivial. Remember, David begins, God, I, I know you're a gracious, willing, loving, compassionate God. I need to talk to you about my sin. And David does not treat sin as trivial. Notice is verse 4, he says, against you, and you only have I sinned. It always puzzled me. I'm thinking, no, that's not true, David. You sinned against 
your people. You sinned against the church. You sinned against the nation first when you were lazy and sat at home when you should have been at war. You sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against Bathsheba's family, her husband, Uriah, her daddy. You sinned against so many people. Why do you come and say you sinned against God and God alone? See, David is, is beyond us here. He's not treating sin as trivial because he realizes sin is ultimately against God and God alone. It's like, I mean, going in and, and confessing to Bathsheba and Uriah, the church, that's easy. David confesses to God. That's hard because God is who he offended. Think about that a minute. If if, 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 you, if you sin against me, let's say you, don't go do this, okay? Let's say you spit in my face. You throw a rock at me. Direct action on your part against me, right? But then you go and say, I don't want to face David. I'll go apologize to his kids, to his children. Sorry what I did to your dad. Spit in his face, I'm sorry. Does that work? And if you're asking, and I'm asking David to go and apologize to Bathsheba and Uriah and the church. See, I'm asking him to apologize to the kids, to God's children. When it wasn't God's children that he so much sinned against, it was God. He spit in God's face. God was the one that says, David, don't commit adultery. David, don't commit murder. David, don't covet. Don't lust. He spit in God's face. And then we go around apologizing to the kids, not saying you shouldn't. Just saying that's not the main deal. It's not the main point. Your most offended party is God himself. Because he was the one who commanded you. He was the lawgiver, and it was his law you broke. And when we don't run to God and confess, God, you are most offended. You're the most offended person in my life. We don't run that way. We are trivializing sin. And it was for sin that Christ died. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Why did Christ suffer? He suffered for sin. I think that's why the Apostle Paul says, oh, it'd be great if I could learn to fellowship in his sufferings. If I could understand the sufferings of Christ for sin. This is true wisdom, John Calvin says, that we would begin to feel the sufferings and the cost of our redemption. Then we would be smart people when we get that we are trivializing sin if we don't take it to God first and primarily. That's what David's doing here. Brokenness is not treating sin as trivial so this is this is the real deal think about suffering women for a minute you know as a parent anything that happens to your kids big deal you don't shrug it off if it's bad if they have a broken arm you just say ah no big deal you don't do that if they have a disease you don't say ah no big deal if they have birthmark ah, no big deal you don't shrug it off why because as a parent, you want perfect kids. You want them without spot or blemish. And yet many times when we, have, we are full of spots and blemishes, we shrug it off. Ah, no big deal. When our Heavenly Father says, it's a huge deal. I want perfect kids without spot and blemish to be presented before my Father. We so trivialize sin when we don't run to God and say, God, I know this matters to you. I know this is why Christ died. I know this pains you. I know Christ suffers because of this. It's against you and you that I've alone that I've sinned. That's where David was. And we if we're gonna get this brokenness that we need, we're not gonna get it until we stop treating sin 
as trivial. We shrug it off. We're playing with sin instead of dealing with it rightly by taking it to God first and primarily. Secondly, brokenness is realizing God is great and big and sovereign and we're not. In other words, we can't fix it. We can't fix our problem. God can. He's big. He's great. He's sovereign. It's possible with God and God alone. But we can't fix it. No matter how much we try to fix it through counseling and therapy and institutional confinement and labeling people and categorizing people as sexual abusers and all that, that doesn't work. We do so many things to try to fix our sin and we forget we're in a condition from which it's impossible for us to fix. We need to remember God's big, God's great, God's sovereign. He can fix it. We cannot. That leads us to a brokenness. I'm undone. I can't fix this. Exactly. But it doesn't leave you nowhere. It leaves you with a big, great, awesome, sovereign God who can do for you what you can't do yourself. We need change. David seeks the change from God. He seeks God to do stuff he can't do himself. Number three, brokenness is being ashamed of sin and wanting God's approval, not man's. We so much live for one another, don't we? I want people to smile at me. But more importantly, David says, I want God to smile at me. Did you notice again the contrast between, he, he does this a lot, verse 9 and 11. Hide your face from my sins. Verse 11. Do not cast me away from your presence. Your presence is again a synonym for face. Don't cast me away from your face. Wait, you said hide me from your face. Now verse 11, don't cast me away from your face. Which is it? And what he's, what he's doing there by giving us this contrast is saying, I want to be before the face of God but I don't want to see his frown. I don't want to see him his scorn. I don't want to see him look disapprovingly of me. I want to see God smile. I want to be in his presence, but I only want to be in his presence when he's smiling. God, if you're not smiling, cast your face away from me. Blot out my transgressions first so that when I see you, I see your smile. Seek God's approval. Not man's. Do you you live for God's smile? Do you wake up praying for it? That's what David's praying for. I want the approval of my God. doesn't matter what man says. I need what God says to matter. And he's seeking the, the approval of God, which he knows he cannot get unless he is covered in the blood of Christ. Only in Christ am I righteous. Only in Christ am I cleansed. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. He's, Lord, remove this, this blood guiltiness. Verse 14, the God of my salvation. I need to be saved. And then when he, when he prays his prayer, he says, then, verse 14, then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Do you catch that? If you're praying for forgiveness, what do you sing about? sing about mercy. You sing about forgiveness. But he wasn't praying for mercy. He was praying for righteousness, for holiness. He says, God, if you do what I'm asking, then I'll sing about righteousness. I'll sing about holiness. That's what I need. That's what David is praying for. So brokenness is is being ashamed of our sin, wanting righteousness, wanting God's approval, praying, Lord, make me holy as you are holy. Do you pray for that in your prayers? Is that your aim? Lord, sanctify me fully. Make me holy. Then fourth, brokenness is determination to make repair. You just see... This emphasis on God, I want to get beyond this whole forgiveness thing. I want to get holy. I want to get righteous. And the fruit of which will be, and he gives 
this ministry, verse 13, I'll start teaching sinners. I'm going to spend time with sinners. I'm going to spend time with saints, so I'll seek to convert the sinners and edify the saints. Verse 18, I'm going to build the walls of Jerusalem, building first your kingdom again. Verse 19, I'm going to be engaged in worship, giving to you sacrifices that are pleasing and that you delight in again. When you sin, notice you miss all that stuff, don't you? By miss, I mean not that you are seeking it, but it's just absent from your lives. People who are most in sin are not focusing on ministering to other sinners. They're not focusing on edifying saints. They're not focusing on building the church. A lot of times they're not even here in church. They're not focusing on using your gifts to build up the body of Christ. They're not focusing on what can I give to God. God, you've given so much. That's not your focus. David says, if I get what I'm asking for, if you make me holy, that becomes my focus. I live my life. The fruit of holiness is a life serving sinners, edifying saints, exalting God with praise and adoration, seeking to build first God's kingdom. And his righteousness. And that's David's determination. So when I say a determination to make repairs, like, okay, you haven't been doing this. That needs to be fixed. But that can't be fixed until the other things are done. Until God gives you a broken and contrite heart. And you, that heart won't come until you realize you're in need of it. And you cry out for God's sovereign work to help you realize our sin affects the whole church. David says, you know, I'm not building the walls. I'm not doing the sacrifices. I'm not teaching. His gifts weren't being used. His sin was affecting a lot of people. Our sin's that way. To trivialize sin is affecting so many people, not just you. But we've bought this message that it just needs to be about me, and I just need to be forgiven, and that's fine, and we can go our way. That's not working. Let me make it real practical real quick because I'm running out of time. I had this lady come to me and she says, I need help. I said, okay. She says, I've been raped. And she says, I'm not talking about this week or last. She said, I was raped 10 years ago. A little more than 10. And she says, I have... I can't tell you how many hours of counseling I've spent, how many institutions I've been to, how many therapy sessions I've sat through. And still to this day, she says, after 10 years, I see certain men and I don't want, I don't want to even be near them. I don't want a man to touch me. She says, I don't even want my husband to touch me most of the time. She says, I can't tell you how much this abuse, how, how much this abuse affected me. I said, I get it. She says, what do I do? How do I get beyond it? I'm tired. And I said, well, let's first of all acknowledge what you just said. You don't need more counseling. You don't need more therapy. You don't need more people telling you to categorize people into an abuse category. These are the abusers. Let's separate the world from the sheep and the goats, and let's put all the abusers over here, maybe even throw them off on some island, and let's put the rest of us, me too, hashtag me too, and we're the victims. Let's put us over here. That's not satisfying. That's not working. She says, granted, that's my experience. I said, okay, just so that you don't go back there. Let's just acknowledge that. Let me tell you what you need to do. And I said, don't by any means think this is easy. And it's going to happen like that. I said, here's the solution. It's in Psalm 51. Number one, first, don't treat anything I say, anything you've done, anything anybody else done, don't let it be construed as treating sin as trivial. It is not. You have really been abused. You have really been hurt. It is a serious offense, and nothing I say, say it, it should be construed as I don't get it and I don't take it seriously enough. 
We should be throwing up at how serious our sin is. Sin, your abuse is serious because sin is serious and sin should never be treated as trivial. But recognize, not only has your abuser treated sin as trivial and many other people have treated sin as trivial, many times we, the abused, treat sin as trivial by not running straight to God because he was most abused and offended. So when we quit taking sin seriously, we are always before the face of God, dealing with sin. And not only have people sinned against you, but you've added to that many sins. And now you're not in church, and now you're not teaching, you're not sharing your story, you're not ministering to sinners, you're not ministering to saints, you're not giving God praise. There's lots of sin here. We can't treat sin as trivial, or there's no repair. Number two, I told her, I said, realize the solution is not in yourself, and it's not in me, it's not in man. You're in a condition from which it is impossible to get escape by people. Your only hope is Christ alone. You must be redeemed out of this situation, purified out of this situation, and only God can fix it. Only God can do it. So seek Him alone for your deliverance, salvation, and redemption. Number three, begin living for God's approval, not man's. You're wanting to please yourself. You're wanting to please your family and get it together. But it's about pleasing God, not about pleasing people. You need to begin pursuing a life in which you are wanting to be before the face of God and see Him smile. And He does that when He sees us covered in the blood of Christ. Sees us for, as one for whom Christ died. And then fourth, determine you will be a responsible worshiper of God who is building his kingdom first in righteousness. That's the way David gets beyond this abuse and this sin and begins to become a man after God's own heart, to have a life of eternal significance. Let's pray together. Father, we come not to play church. We come not to play with you. Life's too painful and too short to do that. Father, forgive us for all the ways we've played with sin, played with you, played with your people, your church. Let us be a people who are restored unto holiness. We thank you that you are a willing God, willing to grant grace to sinners. We need it badly. For those in this room, Lord, who are terribly hurt, even this message brings up stuff they wish was in the past always.